welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. The show is presented to you by Gasowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether it be through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel and Robert Port with Gasowitz Frankel, and we're discussing behavioral finance what it can teach us about how we deal with our money, investing, and risk. As always, we want to share an update with you on the charitable giving program and the celebration of our 25th anniversary. Recently, we supported Live Thrive, a nonprofit organization that works to bring environmental education to our schools and is dedicated to making our community a better place in which to live. We also supported Wonder Root, a nonprofit organization that empowers artists to be proactive in engaging their communities through arts-based service work. Go to Pinterest.com slash Estate Dispute and follow us for updates on our donations. And Robert, why don't we introduce our guests? Thank you, Craig. Uh, today we have with us Ross Bramwell, Senior Investment Analyst with Homrick Berg. We also have Mark Willoughby, Chief Investment Officer, Principal, and Wealth Manager at Modero Wealth Management. And Peter Fleming, Vice President, Nice, Lagana, Eden, and Cully. Uh, why don't we go around the uh, table and, and uh, have us uh, have you tell us a little bit about yourselves, Ross? No, I like to actually, when we start with a, in football, they always say from left to right. And I've always wondered why, seeing how we're not seeing it, what it matters. So let's go left to right, Ross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, thank you for having me here. Um, my name is Ross Bramwell. I work at Hamburg-Berg. I'm in the investments department. So I've been working in the wealth management industry looking at investments and doing due diligence and research on investments the, the last six or seven years. But the beginning of my career, I was actually in accounting and, and auditing. I started with Deloitte & Touche. So I have transitioned over into um, investments in the wealth management industry. And at Hamrick Berg, uh, we are a national independent wealth management firm looking to provide uh, wealth management services and, and financial planning on you know, fee-only based. Um, Talking about football, uh, as you said, you know, we're trying to be the, the quarterback of the financial team for, for our clients. And so I'm in the investments department looking at the individual investments, but also then communicating and talking to clients about those. Good morning, Robert. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, my name is Mark Willoughby. Um, I'm the chief investment officer at Modera Wealth Management. Very similar firm um, to Ross is an independent uh, registered investment advisor. We work with families and trusts and foundations. Um, my, funnily enough, uh, I followed a similar career route to Ross. Started out with Deloitte and Touche as a, as an auditor and made the transition to wealth management about 15 years ago. Um, and my responsibilities at the firm um, are a combination of leading the investment strategy uh, and leading the investment committee at the firm. So I have a lot of experience in, in the investment world like Ross, and I also manage a number of client relationships. So I think I'm equipped to talk a little bit about the topic matter at hand this morning, behavioral finance, because on the investment side, we, we talk about the rational stuff. And then on the management of relationships, clients, humans, we talk about the irrational stuff, which is what we're here to talk about this morning. So delighted to be here. And Peter. Good morning, and thank you for having me. I'm Peter Fleming uh, with Nice Laganda, Eden and & Cully, and we are a high-end life insurance advisory firm. Uh, we place coverage in a separate risk pool 
made up of more affluent uh, client base that allows us to drive down cost of insurance charges. And uh, we've been in business about 26 years and currently have about $10 billion of coverage that we actively manage. Great. Thank you. Um, let's get into our topic today, and I'll, I'll take responsibility for choosing this topic. As you may know, uh, part of my practice is representing folks in securities disputes, and I came across this topic a while ago as I was studying and learning this area. And for me, as a bit of a layperson, it strikes me as the study and the realization that people, and Mark, you referred to this just a moment ago, people don't act rationally when it comes to money, investment decisions, risk decisions that Peter deals with. So I, I thought it'd be interesting to go around the room and see. I know people describe it in different ways. There's behavioral finance, behavioral economics. I thought it'd be interesting to go around and, and hear from each of you what you generally thought this topic means, and then we'll talk about how specifically uh, you address the, the teachings in this area, which has now become an academic uh, discipline and an area of great study, uh, how you uh, use that in your own practices. So maybe let's start with you, Peter. Well, I viewed it simply as an attempt to define and understand uh, so-called irrational behavior in the financial markets. And, uh, and I say so-called because we know that human beings are irrational by nature. So uh, we attempt to, despite our best attempts to think logically, uh, we obviously can't, we're not capable of doing that in most situations. So I, it's an interesting topic. Let, let me jump in. We keep using the word irrational. And in our business where we're dealing with families and disputes and, and companies in disputes, we often use the word functional and dysfunctional. And there's a running joke that every family is dysfunctional. The question is how bad, except my wife's are totally functional. Um, but when we're talking about irrational, I almost feel like we're using a bad choice of words. We're all human, and we're trying to be rational. But our emotions sometimes get in the way. But to me, is it, it's, it's on a spectrum. Am I looking at it right? No, I, I, I agree. Craig, I, the way I look at this, uh, first of all, just to, to come back to Robert's question, I, I see behavioral finance as, as a sort of intersection between standard investment concepts and psychology. Um, and rather than, not to be uh, argumentative, but the way I would put it is rational versus normal, right? As opposed to rational versus irrational. And when you say normal, you want them in quotes, air quotes? Correct. <laughs> Correct. And I think, as you say, there's a continuum. There's a, there's a, at the, at the extreme end of rationality, you've got the robot who can completely eliminate emotions from any insurance or investment decision. And on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the, the folks who are a bundle of behavioral biases and nerves. And when something untoward happens in the markets, everything goes out the window and their ability to ration, ration their reason, their decisions just, you know, disappears. Mark, you just raised an interesting thing. You first said talking about the emotions coming in, and then you said their behavior, their reactions. Mm -hmm. That's a, a somewhat of a different question, how you react to things. Ross, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, yeah. When I was first given the topic, the first thing that popped in my head, is, as I see it, is emotional investing, um, where, you know, the old adage of, you want to buy low, sell high. 
it's the easiest way to make money. It, it makes sense. It's the smartest thing to do. But when you look out there, all the studies show the average investor never buys low and never sells high. Um, normally, they, they do the opposite. And why is that? It's, it's because of emotions. Even when they're dealing with professionals like y'all? Well, well I think that's, th- that's where we live. The three of us here, I think one of the main ways we earn our compensation, frankly, is to close the gap between the actual behaviors of the normal investor, the normal person, and what they should be doing. Uh, We will never get perfection in our efforts, but if we can close the gap between what they should be doing and what they're inclined to do, then I think we'll have done our job. And, and to follow up on, on Craig's observation, my reading in the area suggests that the academics have realized that a lot of what goes on is sort of baked into humans as a result of millions of years of evolution. Uh, the flight or fight response, the fear of loss. Something interesting I read recently is humans have a tendency to look for patterns in things that may well be random behavior you know, stock market up or down, I got to do this, I got to do that. And, and as a result, we're sort of hardwired um, by, by our development and our evolution to act in ways that may be actually contrary to our, our, our own uh, best interests. Um, and, and I thought maybe we'd, we'd go around and ask each of you if you have any real-life examples where you've used this type of, of analysis. And, and for me, I, I have an investment advisor, and my thought about them is they keep me away from my money. They keep me from doing something stupid. And, and to sort of move into to Peter's realm, the fees I pay my advisor are my insurance that – uh, my emotions are going to be separated from my money. So if any of you have some examples of how you've used some of these behavioral finance ideas in counseling clients or in the work you do, I, I think that'd be very interesting for well, our let, listeners. Let's do, a, let's do a twist. That'll be kind of fun. First, each of you, and we're going to go around the room, tell us a, a behavioral problem that you face. Give us a, a colorful example that our listeners can say, oh, my God, that's me. And then give us how you successfully, don't give us your bad ones, how you successfully overcame that tendency with that particular client or that type of client. And Ross, because you look so quizzical, we have to start with you. Putting me on the spot here. Thanks. Um, I, I was actually thinking about when you're talking about kind of, you know, the, the evolution in humans, you know, something may be, you know, just in, inside of us. It made me also think, you know, just within the last five years, you know, we have gone through a great downturn and then a recovery if you're just looking at at the stock market. I mean, it's been some very big moves. And it made me think that, you know, it's not just something that's inside of us, but there's also something versus, you know, the experiences that, that we have. So during the last downturn, when I was sitting down with clients, I could tell the difference between a client who had been investing money and had wealth for, you know, 10, 20 years versus someone who had just obtained or reached a level of wealth in the last few years. And what was the behavioral characteristic, the difference that you saw? Well, well, someone who had been through maybe the dot-com or, you know, going back to the 70s or 80s, they had a much longer time horizon. They had been through this before. They could see out beyond the next two, three, you know, five years versus someone who had just obtained a level of wealth and they thought everything was going well, you know, everything was smooth. And then they saw a big downturn most of them, they wanted to run for the hills. You know, it was very emotional for them going back to, you know, kind of the emotional investing. And so 
you know, our purpose was to, as been said, was to remove the emotions from, from their decision-making, to come up with that plan so they're not making emotional decisions. And I can remember sitting down with a client probably about May or June of 2009, after the stock market had started coming back up, and he was very scared to put money back into the stock market. And he, he was on the younger side, so he had really only gone through that, that one crash. And I remember just asking him, in five years, do you think the stock market's going to be higher or lower than today? And he said, oh, obviously higher. And then it was, okay, so if you see that, that's a long-term time horizon, we should be okay to, to invest. And as been said, we really almost become a, a therapist, you know, just talking these things through, just helping them understand, get back to the rational side of removing the emotions, you know, removing the crisis mode, thinking long-term. And then eventually, although he tiptoed in, it still took a little while because it's it, you know, clients still, you know, don't always listen to us. Sometimes you have to give them tough love. But talking to those different clients where other clients were, hey, this is a great opportunity. I should have done this 10 years ago, so I'm going to do it now. Versus others who they didn't want to get back into the stock market. You're listening to Wealth Matters, where we are discussing the opportunity, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We're your hosts, Craig Frankel and Robert Port from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaswich Frankel. And we're talking to Ross Bramwell, Peter Fleming, and Mark Willoughby, discussing behavioral finance, what it can teach us about how we deal with money, investing, and risk. So we go now to Mark, the bad story, the, the, the emotion, and how you recently resolved it. Well, I, I'm going to give you something similar um, to Ross. I'm going to go back to uh, the credit crisis. And I'm, because I'm Irish and I'm contrary, I'm going to give you a bad news story and a good news story very quickly. Um, I personally think that the biggest behavioral bias out there is fear, okay? I think when you look at investment strategies, which is the world that myself and Ross live in, the moment where your investment strategy will implode, explode, break down, is when you have a really dislocated market, and despite all your education of your clients, their emotions take over and they panic right when they shouldn't. So to me, in the middle of 2007, 2008, uh, we, we had a number of clients, as you can imagine, who were stressing out, losing sleep. And I have two contrasting stories. There was one where I spoke to this particular client for probably a solid six months leading in to the bottom of the market, which if you remember was March of 2009. And I was trying to explain to him that it wasn't an all or nothing. It wasn't that you either had to keep your investment strategy as it is, which was, let's say, 50% stocks, 50% bonds, or go to cash. It could have been something in between. And long story short, that was my failure because I failed to get him to understand we could tweak the risk level down so that he could get sleep at night again. But basically stay stick with his long-term investment strategy. In he other had, words, moderation, what we try to teach our children that they don't Moderation. Follow. It's it's satisficing is the verb that I use here. Satisfying. Satisficing. Ficing. Which is uh, one of my favorite quotes is the perfect is the enemy of the good. Okay. I'm not looking for perfection here with this client. I'm just looking for him come down off that ledge. Just trust me. Long-term strategy, let's remember all the conversations we've had. But he jumped off the ledge. And when did he jump off the ledge? Literally on March 9th of 2009. 
when the market hit the bottom. You know, it's funny you should say that, Mark, because I was involved in an arbitration case. And when I looked at my client's papers, she sold out on March 9th as well. And, and one of the things I'd like any of you to speak to is uh, what I call the noise out there. You know, we, we are all bombarded with, with TV and supposed experts yelling to buy, to sell, to do this. We can go on the Internet. And in fact, you know, in these days you can go and, and panic and sell everything you own in, in 10 minutes. And, and how do you deal with, Peter, the, the noise that, that people hear out there of, of so-called experts who uh, may, in, in my assessment, probably make your, your job difficult in terms of getting in the way of what you're trying to advise clients to do? That's a great question because it's, you're making me think about politics because it, typically it's he who or she who is noisiest is the voice that is heard, and by no means does that make them an expert. And we combat that a good bit in our side of the industry. It, you just have to start with what I call advisor and client education. And you, you have to, well, we really start with the advisors first because uh, you know, these gentlemen here are quarterbacks for their clients. For us, we recognize that clients, when they hear about something we might do, they're going to go to their quarterback and say, have you heard about this? Help me understand this. Help me vet this. Is this true? Is this real? Et cetera. So that's where you have to begin. It's a long-term battle. It's not something yeah, well, you're going we, to... We have the same thing in the legal industry. We have people come in and all the time who says, well, I was looking on the internet and they said to do this and do that and the other thing. And you have to say, well, you know, the internet's fine, but you've retained us. We have the expertise. You know, some anonymous person given suggestions on the internet is, is not going to be particularly helpful. Can I, can I just interject here for a second, Absolutely. Robert? One of the little sort of tools that we use, because that media thing can be either a doomsday or it can be about Alibaba. Oh, we need to get into Alibaba. So on the doomsday, you know, it's constant communication. But on the good news side where they say, should we be in this investment? One of the little tools that we use in our firm is we call it the Atlantic City or Las Vegas account where it's just a little release valve that it, you know, some clients are going to want to have an individual stock story to talk about at the cocktail party. Yeah, we, we call that play money. And, play money. Right. And, it, you know, it, what we our mentality is, okay, if we can get them to open up a Las Vegas account, put a small amount of money in it, let them knock themselves out, and that's the release valve. And if that shuts them up and then allows them to focus on the core long-term strategy – with the vast majority of their money, then that's a win as far as we're concerned. Mark, you had said that you had the horror story. You told us the horror story. I don't want to, to cut you off. Tell me the non-horror story. Well, the non-horror story is, is almost um, counterintuitive in that, you know, I happen to work with a lot of widows. And I work with a lot of widows through the credit crisis. And you would think retirement, older widows are going to react really, really negatively to what's going on around them and they just I couldn't have been prouder of that particular segment because by constant communication and reminding them of the long-term strategy and and just working hard to take the as much emotion out as possible the vast majority of that segment of our client base stuck with the strategy 
And, you know, we can look back at the numbers now. We can look at the clients who jumped, who pulled the panic button, pushed the panic button. And we can see their long-term investment returns. And I'm sure Ross can say the same for his client base. Those are the people that shot themselves in the foot, unfortunately, very sadly. It's the people that stuck with it all the way down and then all the way back up. They actually made out the best. So really, that sounds like you're, 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 we should be thanking you. That you that for those widows, that category, you were the one that protected them. Well, I have a conflict of interest in agreeing with you, so I'll, 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 re- I'll recuse myself from answering. Peter, you get the chance. Tell us, tell us your kind of the problems that you saw with a behavioral kind of finance approach and then your success story, and then I'll, I won't interrupt Robert again. I don't believe that. <laughs> I have a story that where there, there are two themes that go hand in hand. One is that the belief that all life insurance is the same, we call that retail, uh, where there are really no differentiating, differentiating characteristics by products, by carrier, et cetera. And then there's also the thought that, okay, I've got it, I'm done. I stick it in a drawer, forget about it. Couldn't be more inaccurate to assume those, uh, uh, that premise. Uh, we had a gentleman who was a hedge fund executive who was worth $100 plus million out of uh, – up in the mid-Atlantic area. He was retired, riding horses, et cetera. How is my dad? I think he's doing wonderful. <laughs> I'll tell him you said hello. Uh, but, you know, mid-40s. This guy's done quite well, obviously. He got a – he had a whole life policy, about $15.5 million uh, for estate planning purposes. He got a premium increase notice from the carrier because the interest rates had come down. See, their increase is premium – uh, $2,000 annually, or drop his death benefit down from 15 and a half to $14 million. Well, that got him all up in arms. And I know exactly why. Because in his mind, he thought he was done with this. I've done it. It's supposed to do exactly what I saw on the piece of paper. And I can go ride my horses off into the sunset. Totally incorrect. So, uh, his advisors uh, brought us to the table on that, and the long and short is, after analyzing this, we were able to help him understand that this is a very dynamic asset, that it can be tailored and customized. He didn't understand that at all, and uh, we, we were able to save him about $21,000 a year in annual premium with the same amount of death benefit, limiting so much of the risk that was built in. He's thrilled. He went, once he understood that he could have something that was customized for him and his wife, the light bulb went off, and he began to put his investment lens, which is a very good lens, by the way, on the insurance world in terms of developing his product. Yeah. One, one of the things that's been fascinating to me is to learn how people misapprehend or misunderstand risk. There is always a probability of a really bad thing happening, whether it's in the investment world or, you know, you deal with risk all the time, Peter. And um, I'm wondering if you can speak to how you explain to people that, for you in the investment community, what you do is not always going to go up. You're going to have, you know, volatility, which you try and modify as best you can. But there's always risk out there. If you're going to be doing this, there's risk. Or you in the insurance world, Peter, um, you know, it seems to me that you are 
dealing with risk in what you are mm-hmm. uh, discussing. So um, if, if one of you could, could deal with that, and uh, let's, let's see where we go from there. Well, I think a good example of that is you just go back a couple years ago. You saw everybody out on the corners flipping We Buy Gold signs. And gold had gone up for 12 years in a row. And we had clients who, you know, you saw out there, they'd, they'd call them gold bugs. They thought gold was going to go up forever. It reached, you know, $1,800 an ounce, and people were calling for it to go up to 2500 And you had clients who thought it was a safe haven. It was the perfect asset. It was just going to keep going up. But they didn't understand the risk. You know, what goes up normally will come down in a, in a different cycle. That's actually called gravity. Gravity. <laughs> and so we had clients who wanted to buy at the very top because, as we talked about, they couldn't filter out the noise. Everybody was talking about gold. It was all over the radio stations, all over the TV shows, the commercials. Everybody was inundated with, we buy gold, we buy silver, buy these new coins that are being printed and, and the sign flippers on, on the corner. But I think you have to come up with a plan. And as we talked about, I mean, that, that play money account is a perfect example. We did have some clients who said, if you love gold, this is where you go, this is where you go buy it. Because You're- what's happened is you had clients who bought at the top, and now that it's come down 30 40%, they won't sell it. You know, that's a, you know, they're just, they're afraid to have those losses thinking, hey, well, it will go back up. They're a little over-optimistic about it. So they didn't understand that risk of, hey, this has gone up. It could go back down because they were looking at all those different biases, you know, over the last few years. Yeah, one, one of my great quotes uh, dealing with how to be counterintuitive comes from Warren Buffett, and I'm sure all of you have heard this. And he supposedly said, to be fearful when others are greedy, and to be greedy when others are fearful. And that, that captures, in my mind, the type of counterintuitive behavior one is supposed to have. And if I could interject there, Robert, I couldn't agree more. I think we call ourselves wealth managers. We call ourselves portfolio managers. We call ourselves insurance managers. At the end of the day, we're human behavior managers. And th- I think one of the biggest values we can add is being contrary. Bring our clients down when they're up and bring them up when they're down and just try and narrow the, the sort of volatility of their emotional level. So I think, you know, we probably earned most of our corn during the credit crisis when they were just, they thought the world was coming to an end. So the value we add, honestly, is, is to be contrary. And, and if you look at the current situation on the investment markets, and Ross will, will back me up here, we've gone through an incredibly tumultuous 10 years. We've been down, and for the last five years, we've been on an incredible upward run on the stock market. At this point, we're trying to counsel our clients. There's a real danger of complacency right now. Let's not get carried away. Volatility is at very low levels. At some point, we don't know when. We can't predict the future. We don't have a crystal ball. Things are going to get rough again, and you're going to need to remember that fear is your biggest enemy. And when this hits again, you've got to listen to us Try and be calm. It's like when you go into a slide in a car, right? When you hit a nicey patch in a car, which doesn't happen that often in this part of the country. But what's the driving instructor's guidance? You don't brake. Stay calm. Go the opposite direction of where your car is going. That's what we're basically trying to get our clients to do. You when just mar- revealed your age. That's not true anymore with, with anti-lock brakes. I just went teaching a kid. Uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm getting old, Craig. You're listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We're your hosts, Robert 
Port and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're talking to Ross Bramwell, Peter Fleming, and Mark Willoughby, and our discussion today is behavioral finance, what it can teach us about how we deal with money, investing, and risk. Now, we were just talking about uh, risk. Let me, let me throw out another topic here, which has been alluded to, and that is something I found fascinating, which is studies have shown that people are, I think the, the data was twice, they react twice as much to a $1 loss as they do to a $1 gain. On financial terms, that should be equal. But, but the loss creates much more anxiety and much more concern. And I'm wondering how that plays into uh, how, how any of you counsel your clients in terms of dealing with, again, that, that's a risk matrix, but it's a very precise measurement which surprised me about how we react. Peter? I think it goes straight to uh, when I'm listening to these gentlemen, uh, I remember from my days way back in the investment business, I always thought really it's two things that move markets, fear and greed. It's, they may analyze all the uh, economic data, but it's the fear and greed reaction to that data that really drives the markets. And let's put a risk management lens on that for our world, and A, that's human nature. When you begin to lose something, the fear kicks in. And uh, so how, how do you mitigate that? And that, which gets straight into my world of, of managing the risk of uh, trying to create value at a certain time place in time when it, when event in my world is you know when death occurs and as as part of that I'm sure Peter you have instances where where people have uh, behaviors reaction maybe even destructive behaviors that sort of stand in the way of getting a thoughtful insurance plan into place can you speak to that a little bit and how that touches upon the the topic we're discussing uh, I think for the most part people don't understand that they can this goes straight to advisor and client education. It always starts there. And I'm thinking about the term with behavioral finance called anchoring, where people have uh, uh, preconceived notions, essentially, or, or incorrect baselines from which they base all their future decisions. Nowhere is that more true, I think, than in the life insurance industry. So you have to help walk the clients through uh, what is available to them, how they're able to access, it, it, you know, uh, it, they, that they can tailor, that they can customize, that they can craft a plan. And that plan has to be continuously monitored. This is a big, uh, uh, I call it the sin of the industry, if you will, where that doesn't happen with most people's portfolios like it does with the investment world. So, it, it, but at the end of the day, how do you combat all that? It's all about the education, which is continuous. I'm on, here. On, the, on the anchoring point, I'm reminded of something I read recently that people are still focused on what I think were principally artificial values of their real estate holdings back in 07 and 08. And if someone needs to sell something now or perhaps do a 1035 exchange or whatever, they're caught up in on that number, and it, it sort of precludes them from, from taking action. 
Um, how does that affect, uh, you know, sort of the anchoring issue or the, um, uh, the inability to assess risk? How, how does that affect how you handle clients, Ross? Well, I can think of a personal example. In, in 2008, um, I was looking for, for a new job, and I was looking at opportunity. I was in Atlanta moving to Southern California, and the value of my house had gone down. And it was one of those things, I don't want to sell my house. I'll lose so much money. And so, but you have to think about it rationally and remove the emotion thinking, okay, my house was probably never worth what I thought it was. It was never going to stay at that value. And then if I move, there may be a better alternative. I moved to Southern California. Housing values have come down even more. If there is a rebound, I'll actually be better off it in, in a couple of years. Did it work? So, it did work pretty well. Thank you. Um, what, but, I'm, but I'm back in Atlanta, thank, thankfully. So, but I, I think you, you do have those anchoring where, or those biases where, I think what's most important is you have to come up with a plan, and I would even recommend that plan needs to be rec- needs to be written down, because when you have that plan, I talked about you know buy low, sell high. If you have that plan and you stay disciplined and stick to it, that's what's going to force you to buy low, sell sell high. We talked about fear and greed. I mean, right now you see a lot of clients that are greedy. They want to squeeze every last you know tenth of a percent of return out of the stock market now, where maybe according to their plan. They need to take some chips off uh, off the table. So if you have that plan, it helps you kind of filter out all the noise, stick to your plan. You're not watching your portfolio every day because you have a long-term plan. If the stock market goes down, you'll rebalance. You'll put more money into it. If it goes high, you'll take some chips off the table and go, in, go into something else. So I think if you have that plan and then you can remove the emotion from the decision-making at, the, at those times when you're in crisis, I mean, I think that's the value that we can add. And even if you're doing this on your own, have a plan, have it written out, and and stick to it. You know, what, don't change it on the fly. One of the benefits that I, as sort of a layperson on the outside looking in, see a plan having is that it cuts down on, again, the tendency to react emotionally, plus the tendency to think one can predict the future. That stock market's going up, stock market's going down, let's do this, let's do that, sort of doing things on the fly on an ad hoc basis. So if you have a plan, my sense is that a plan goes a long way to sort of putting the behavioral issues off to the side and in an objective way dealing with them by saying we've decided – uh, you know, that it's best for you, given your circumstances, to be so much in equity, so much in bonds, so much in cash, so much in whatever, and let's tune out all the noise. And let, let's talk about a plan, because, Ross, something you said really jumps out at me, which is a plan for what happens when you face change that you know in advance. In the domestic relations world, this is called a prenup. Um, <laughs> but it actually makes a lot of sense. When are you going to be your most fair and your most intelligent? It's not when facing a crisis. It's when thinking about it, how you react. And Mark, you would mention gradations, that it's not an all or nothing. So I'm hearing a lot from all three of you that education, teaching your clients, the one thing I haven't heard from you, which I find very interesting, is how you deal with the dynamic of spouses. Um, as I see in clients that I deal with, there is oftentimes a spouse that takes the lead. And that may be the earning spouse, it may be the better educated spouse, it may be the better one with money. But in the background, that other spouse may be very nervous. And the decision-making spouse who may be thrust into that role is getting, and I say humorously, a little bit of blame back at home. 
How do you deal with that dynamic when you're typically having a relationship really with one person? I, well, I, I like this question because we uh, deal with spouses a good bit on a couple fronts. Uh, one is when uh, uh, wealth uh, transfer or estate planning plans are put in place, uh, if, one, if the husband is typically the wage earner, the wife may say, well, what happens to me if you die? What kind of value are you going to create for me, i.e. with life insurance? Is that going to be enough for me? That's one way to do it. And they are quite vocal in that. There's also situations where families have a tremendous amount of wealth and all the trusts that hold the assets stay with the blood relatives. And if the blood relative dies... The spouse you know, is not getting those assets. It goes to the children if they have children. And so what happens there? How do we mitigate that? And then, of course, we also deal with ex-spouses uh, or some t- an ex-spouse and a current spouse. I'm sure you guys have some of that as well. And so you know, carving up the wealth in those situations, and how can we do all that? So um, they are very much at the table when when we are involved and have big voices and we want to hear those voices because uh, they're there. And if they're not speaking to us, they're speaking to somebody. And so Mark, how do you deal with that on the emotional, the behavioral level where they're obviously having huge influence either on the decision maker and yet you may not really be hearing that and you may not have the direct ability to educate, so to speak, that spouse? Well, first of all, our preference and requirement is if we're managing both spouses' portfolio, that both be involved in the decision making. That's that's critical. What for if us. only one spouse really has the money? So here's here's I'm going to answer that by taking a step back. We've talked mostly about investment plans up to this point. Now I'm going to start talking about one level back, which is the overall wealth management plan, which is not just the investment strategy, but what does the what what does their balance sheet look like? What's their earning power? What do they want their retirement to look like? Because that is the context you need to properly engineer an investment strategy. It may be that they have so much money saved that, frankly, they don't need to take any risk on their investment portfolio. And we can use that if, if you have one spouse looking to be very risky and one looking to be very conservative, we can use that context to help them get to a compromise. Because you have to get the spouse's pretty much on the same ballpark on the investment strategy. Otherwise, when you know what hits the fan, then the whole thing will probably explode. So for us, it's a matter of educating the, the, the both spouses, how much risk do you need to take? Now, most people need to take a certain amount of risk because they don't have enough money saved for their retirement. So then it's a matter of making sure that they're both pretty much on the same ballpark in terms of the investment strategy. Because otherwise, it's just it's headed for disaster. And Ross, how do you how do you bring them together? How do you bring spouses who may have different attitudes? I mean, the joke when my wife and I got married was we were such opposites. Um, You say opposites attract. We've been married twenty three years, but on paper, it looked very different. How do you bring them to the same page and not instead be the antagonist? A a normal one hour meeting becomes a three hour meeting um, (laughs) in many instances because really it is it's talking about. I mean. In those first meetings that we would have with clients, we would fill out a a client questionnaire. And one of the first questions always is, we'd also take a step back and say, you know, what are your life goals? 
You know, what do you want to do after you retire? And it's funny how the goals can be very different between spouses. You know, the husband may want to have a lake house or, or race cars ar around the country, and the wife wants to travel to Europe and go on cruises, or one just wants to stay home and actually do nothing. Yeah. Sometimes we would probably have more, I'm going to say the word conflicts, but differences in those objectives, kind of the high-level objectives, not necessarily on the investment plan. Because normally, if you can build that relationship, they'll start trusting you on the investments on how to get there. But it's getting that big picture T together so that so they are aligned and really the only way to do that is is talking about it. and sometimes it would be meetings and it, then it would be you have to go home and, and talk about this and discuss it which sometimes what? can be very uncomfortable for them but it, it's really just talking it out and then you just providing a, a plan and a path to be able to figure out okay here are our objectives so how do we get there and that's when we can then step in but we just help them kind of come together on their objectives and goals one of the things I often notice in my cases, or at least it's my perception, is that there is a ill fit between the advisor and the client. And many times my sense is that the client pushed the advisor to do something that the advisor really didn't want to do. And I'm wondering, in light of this discussion, whether at some point in time, any of you have been in a situation where you just understand that no matter how hard you try, the client is not going to accept your expertise, not going to let you implement some of your teachings from the things we've said here. And you just say, I'm sorry, we can't, we can't take you on as a client. Does that happen often? Or are you more optimistic about the ability to educate folks that the expertise you're bringing to their table with respect to their investments, with respect to their insurance needs, is actually worthwhile. And again, tune out the noise, forget your emotions, you know, rely on a professional who's sensitive to and understands these things. That happens not that often, but it does happen. And I, I sort of categorize those types of clients into two buckets. One where there's no hope that they'll listen to your advice. And at that point, you know, you've really got to look to your integrity and probably part ways because one of the premises we have for bringing anybody on as a client is that they're they're able to delegate part of the decision-making to us. They're, they're involved in the decision-making. They're the decision-maker. We're the facilitator. We present the pros and cons, but they ultimately make the decision. But if they choose not to follow our advice, I don't think there's a premise for a relationship there. The other ones are the ones who will follow your advice. And at that point, you're again, you're not looking for perfection, but you're looking... As an advisor, we want to help our clients. That's why we're, we do what we do. So for those, if there's a shred of hope, we do our best to get them to act less stupidly. So let's... let's I'm going to give each one kind of an easy question, but I want to answer short, and then we're going to go towards the end. Uh, Ross, you had talked about trying to persuade clients to put a written plan... So just, you know, give me a percentage or a number. How many of your clients are you successful in getting them to do that? What 100%. I mean, that that is that part. That is great. I mean, from my experience, that was part of the program. It was we sit down, we go through a questionnaire, we figure out your objectives. Because if you can't get through that step, we're never going to be successful. So then that They're going to be mad bucket. at the first crisis. They're going to be upset with us. It's not going to be a good working relationship. Mark, how, how successful are you at getting them to do a written plan? Well, written plan... 
written investment plan, yes. 100% of our clients. How also, about a written wealth management wealth plan? Wealth management plan, that's 100% too, but it's a little bit more nebulous, right? Because it sure. becomes a series of, of, of objectives for one spouse versus the other, and the question is whether they follow through. We keep them honest on the investment plan. And that's your as annual someone, follow-up. Yeah, that's yeah, the as, annual follow-up. As a firm that does litigation and me in the investment area, having an investment uh, and written investment plan is frankly a bit of, not to step on your toes, Peter, but a mm-hmm. bit of an insurance policy for you because I often get into things and it just looks like, you know, people are making ad hoc decisions all the time and there's no plan, there's no thought, there's nothing that can be divined from what the interaction was as to how the client's investments would go forward. As Ross said earlier, and I completely agree with him, having that investment plan is the single best way to mitigate, minimize most of the behavioral biases we've talked about. This and morning. to reduce risk. And to reduce risk. Peter, you get your chance. How many of your clients are able to do a plan in writing, either for their insurance needs or you're seeing their just wealth management needs? Well, uh, we put a written document uh, together whenever coverage is placed 100% of the time. And the document states, here's the purpose of what, this is what clients forget. Here's the purpose of the coverage. Here is how it's going to be owned. Here's our, the type of product we're using. Here's why. And uh, here are the trustees, et cetera. Here's the kind of reporting that will take place ongoing. Absolutely. Okay, we're actually towards the end. It felt like five minutes, right? Okay, so each of you just tell us, remind us of your name, and if if our listeners want to contact you, maybe hire you or ask questions, how can they get in uh, in touch with you? Um, So we'll start with Ross. Uh, Ross Bramwell. I work at Homrick Berg. Uh, We are Atlanta-based, although we have clients in about 40 states, but our our main office is in Buckhead. Uh, Our website is uh, homrickberg.com, and our phone number is 404-264-1400. And Mark, you tell us. My name is Mark Willoughby of Modera Wealth Management. We're, we've got four offices up and down the East Coast, including one here in Atlanta. My phone number is 678-385-1067, and our website is moderawealth.com. Peter? Uh, Peter Fleming. Uh, my direct phone number is 770-763-0687 uh, with Nice, Lagana, Eden, and Cully, and our website is... Uh, www.nlec.com. And your hosts today are Robert Port and Craig Frankel with Gaslowitz Frankel. Our website is www.gaslowitzfrankel.com. I want to thank everybody today for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Ross Bramwell, Peter Fleming, and Mark Willoughby. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. Mm-hmm.